Hier komen wij in vreemd. My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We record the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And we want to send our solidarity to uh, Indigenous people and um, show our solidarity whenever we can with their ongoing struggles for justice. We um, fundraise for the show on Patreon patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast and today I would like to give a special shout out to all of the people who contribute to our Patreon. We do really appreciate and value you and I know we may not do as much as other Patreon accounts to give you all sorts of free gifts and uh, merchandise and whatever but we're quite busy trying to make the show and make the content as good as possible so um, we hope you appreciate it and uh, know that you are in our minds as we make the show um, and if anyone else wants to join in on Patreon, please do so. I'm also going to add to the show notes for this episode a donor box account, which it gives you the opportunity if you don't feel in the financial uh, position to be able to give any ongoing contributions, you can give us a one-off donation and that helps us to put on the podcast and also with the types of activism that you hear about um, on the podcast and the types of activists that you hear on the podcast because we're very proud to have um, on Red Flag Radio people who are not just uh, historians of the struggle but people who continue to be active and our guest today is no exception to that. Veteran socialist activist and historian and our comrade Liz Ross, um, the author of three books and her latest book just published is called Stuff the Accord, Pay Up. Workers' Resistance to the ALP ACTU Accord and is available, of course, in the bookshop, Red Flag um, Bookshop, shop.redflag.org.au. And um, it's just out, and I know a bunch of people have been avidly reading it and catching up with it. It's a book that's much anticipated because I think it sort of um, it outlines a bunch of the hidden history uh, of resistance to the Accord and actually talking about that today in the crisis that we're facing and the role of the trade unions, I think it's more topical than ever to know that this accord that um, we're going to be talking about today was not just accepted by rank-and-file workers. Um, and so we're going to be talking about those struggles. So it's fantastic to have you on Red Flag Radio, Liz. Let's begin with some of that context then for the accord. Um, there might be people who are sort of familiar with it, but perhaps helping a bit of a summary of the 1970s and the period leading up to kind of understand why this accord uh, was put in place, you've got to understand a bit of that history. So we had Whitlam elected Labor government in 1972. We had an economic crisis. This is very broad stroke summary of the 1970s. Uh, we had the coup in 1975 with Fraser, the Liberal government coming in, forced into power undemocratically, um, and there were huge levels of industrial action. So there's a lot going on in the 1970s um, in the lead-up uh, to the Accord. Uh, can you just start with a bit more about uh, this period? 
Sure. Um, and it's great to be on um, Red Flag Radio. It's one of the, my favourite podcasts and so I hope it's yours as well. And good hi to um, both Ros and Liam for the fabulous work that you're doing. Okay, so with the Accord. So first we had Whitlam and that was the first federal Labor government in tw over 20 years. They won power in the wake of the 1968 early 70s uprisings, the workers' revolution in Portugal, a huge rise in industrial struggle and the social movements, black, women and gay, and, and the Whitlam government brought in a, a range of social changes. Rising workers' struggles resulted in a massive strike wave in 1974 and that was the highest since the revolutionary years of 19, 1917 to 1919 in Australia. So it was enormous. Um, but um, by that time, the world economy, including Australia, started trending down and the ruling class was really smarting from the, from the recent workers' victories and they turned to what we, we now call um, neoliberalism as a way of rescuing their system, capitalism, and defeating the working class gains. Reagan and Thatcher led the way internationally uh, but, in fact, one of the first of, of these kinds of attacks came from Malcolm Fraser, his Liberal National Coalition and their ruling class backers, who began by engineering a coup, throwing Whitlam out of office. Now, the workers' response to this was fabulous. They struck in their millions. But the ACTU, as they've done time and again, turned a potential strike wave and restoration of Whitlam's government into a failed electoral campaign. So Fraser got in. He promised a lot to the ruling class and into the strikes, but he, in the end he couldn't deliver. Tom O'Lincoln's book, Years of Rage, outlines the big sort of industrial and political battles during the, those years, which in fact neither side won. There was an effective stalemate. But... By the, by the sort of early 80s, industrial action began to rise, but then came a crushing recession and suddenly talk of deals between the government and unions, even with employers, to pull the economy out of recession, to create more jobs, more security, seemed more plausible than tearing down the system itself. So what about in, in this period of the 70s then? I mean, you've got this high level of industrial struggle um but obviously you've also got some kind of contradictions in there too so can you give a bit more information about the union movement in that period leading up to the accord in the 1970s and particularly some of the more what were considered the then surprisingly now but then the leading left-wing unions such as the australian manufacturers workers union sure uh the, the AMWU is really key to, to what happened afterwards. It was the leading union. It was the pace setter in terms of wages and conditions because there were members throughout all aspects of the, of the workforce. So you had AMWU members in hospitals, things like that, um, at schools sometimes. But basically they were everywhere and people, other, other workers' wages and conditions were set up in, in relation to, to the AMWU workers' conditions. So, so this really made them a key union. They had a left-wing leadership, uh, the Communist Party and also the, uh, the left of the Labor Party, but this also put them in the position where 
as the left started to retreat to look more to reform than revolution and class collaboration rather than class war, what you saw was the AMWU, um, backed by the ACTU, were bringing out things like the people's budget and then a series of very luridly illustrated pamphlets, Australia uprooted, Australia ripped off, Australia on the rack, Australia on the brink, you know, all mm. creating doom and gloom but, you know, with the solution being cooperation with with the with the ruling class. So um, and they start they looked at other countries like the UK, Austria, Sweden, where these kinds of class collaborationist, what were called social contracts, were made um, between between the employers, the unions and government. It was mostly between um, unions and government, but the employers were often a key part. The sort of and, and creating a kind of national unity project, the kind of thing that Morrison talks about and even Albanese talks about now. And mm. so these contracts promise union officials a seat at the planning table, some certainty for workers, but at the cost of concessions around wages and conditions and the right to take industrial action. It was these sorts of examples that the AMWU um, looked to. But I just want to say briefly that in fact, as Kelty, who Bill Kelty, who was head of the ACTU, who really pushed the, the accord process as well, he spelled out what in fact this, this process meant. And he said, the and I'll quote, the philosophic framework of the Hawke-Keating government was open up the economy to the rest of the world, increase productivity, promote competition. But part of that distribution would be powerful safety nets in national health care, superannuation and wages. In turn, these super safety nets would promote adaptation and change, thus increasing productivity. So it wasn't about workers really benefiting. It was to shore up the economy, just like Christian Porter's recent suggestions of a new accord. And that's what the AMWU led the working class into. Mm. So then we get to the... Um ACTU Congress in 1981 um, and the resolution that was passed to restrict wages, as you say, in return for this idea of a social wage. So all of that kind of social wage stuff was basically what working class people um, should really expect from government in terms of basic welfare spending, health, education, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. So they're basically trading off wage rises right from the beginning for things that you should be demanding anyway, um, just as basic welfare spending and infrastructure. So sort of where was the drive for all of this coming from? I know there's all of the economic factors, but then you've got people um, like Laurie Carmichael from the AMWU who's supposed to be a communist. Like how was this allowed to happen from the perspective of the trade union leadership? Well, yeah, like I said earlier, basically it was about the shift in politics of this of this union leadership. It was the shift from any sort of revolutionary or really any left wing kind of idea about what to do, what what you know, how to stand up for you, for workers themselves. That that really was behind all of this, and it was it was about. It really was about having a seat at the table because the accord promised all sorts of things. It, it promised uh, union officials being part of 
these boards that looked at re restructuring the waterfront, restructuring the steel industry, doing all of that sort of stuff, you know, playing a so-called key role in the in the economy. And this was a prize, you know, a glittering prize for the union officials in a way that standing up for their for their membership wasn't. And it also, you know, they were won over to the idea that that really class collaboration was the way forward. And so when when this when the accord was sold, it was never sold as, oh, you've got to give up your wages and conditions. It was it was sold with things like um, the wording was you would maintain and improve wages over time. Now over time meant sometime never, in fact. <laughs> but that never that never was was explained. Um, and also with things like superannuation, Keating, um, who was treasurer for most of the time and a Prime Minister for a brief time at the end of the Accord years, he actually said, and I'll quote again, this superannuation involved an intellectual transition from retirement welfareism, you know, in other words, your entitlement to welfare, mm. uh, to a compulsory self-provision through the share market. In other mm. words, dump the state-funded pension, make workers pay for their own retirement by speculating on the on you know in the biggest casino in the world the stock market so really you know that's that's what the sort of thing that they said and i think this is where as well this whole class collaboration is pushed by the union officials at the time fits in very well with the direction that union officials are taking at the moment and this is why looking at the past, looking at what these class collaborationist projects actually involve has so much relevance for today. Um, and I think that's why, you know, when we're looking at this sort of stuff, we need to, we can learn from this. But I do want to just give an example of how Laurie Carmichael, who claimed that the Accord was this pathway to socialism, uh, that the Accord in Austria was sort of a miracle or something, um, he... He and the leader of the uh, manufacturing workers, manufacturing um, employers peak body, Bert Evans, they did a deal. They, Evans wanted a no-strike deal. Carmichael said, look, I can't go to the workers and tell them they can't strike. What we'll do instead, we'll have a thing called a no-claims commitment. Mm -hmm. And what that meant was that if workers went outside the agreement of their, you know, the wages and conditions that they'd made with the boss, then they'd be hammered. They'd, you know, they'd be, they'd be taken to court, they'd be penalised, all sorts of things. So Evan says, okay, so he sells this to his, um, his uh, peak body. They all vote for him. This is round about Christmas. Um, they, he goes away at Christmas time, comes back, and there's three or four disputes. So he rings Carmichael up and says, you know, hey, we've got, a, we've got some problems here. Um, Carmichael says, don't worry, forget it. And what Carmichael did, he went back to his um, members and he said to, him, to them, you bastards voted for this, you're going to do it, drop it. In other words, drop the no extra claims. Um, and that then became the basis of the accord and Hawke told Evans that he wouldn't have entertained the idea of the accord if these manufacturing unions hadn't proved that they could be trusted. And so it's no wonder that Evans commented at this 213 um, celebration of the accord years, this was fantastic for us. Mm. Um, and 
you know, the, the social wage campaign leading up to the Accord years, it was so lacklustre. This is what they promised. They said, okay, do this deal, accept these conditions, but we'll go for these social wage. It was completely useless and it turned into, as happened so many times, an electoral campaign supporting Labor and the new Accord. So, yeah, yeah so that's, what, that's where it led. It led to total reformism, total sellout and... And the union officials policing their members for, on, on behalf of the bosses. Yeah. Our cameras across the world. It's remarkable, really, and how much the bosses just couldn't believe their luck with the accord and with the Labor government mm. in the 1980s. When around the world, what you're seeing is neoliberalism being driven home by. The people you would expect, you know, the Margaret Thatchers, Ronald Reagans, the class war warriors are smashing the unions. Well, in Australia, what do we have? We have the Labor Party smashing the unions um, mm. hand in hand with people who call themselves communists. And mm. and, it, and it's a lot easier actually to do it that way, which is why I think it's so important, yeah, as you said, to learn these lessons. And some of that jargon and that rhetoric is very familiar to me and Liam yep. listening to this story yep. and thinking about what the leadership of the NTEU are trying to sell people, a national jobs protection framework. I mm. mean, that could be a line taken out of the accord mm. that will protect your jobs if you take a wage cut, if you say you won't have industrial action, if you won't, you know, mm. if you'll give up some of your conditions and we'll promise you you can have them back later, mm. you know, like... A bit open-ended like, again. Are you completely yeah. stupid? We have read history. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. also that language about... And to the, say... Yeah. The, the class collaboration and stuff as well. So not just the, you know, uh, you'll have your wages and stuff back at some undefined point in the future, but also that underlying sentiment that we're sort of, we're all in it together. Us and the bosses, we've all got to take a haircut. We've all got to, you know, that's the phrase they use now, take a haircut. Um, you know, so that that stuff is, again, this echo from the past that... Once you know that history, it sends a chill down your spine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that that really struck me was that the one of the chancellor, vice chancellors at one of the universities was adamant that he wasn't going to give up any of his wages at all. He wasn't going to cut them at all. And it just reminded me of the accord years where the bosses actually, um, they they you know these top bosses, they actually got increase wages while workers got cuts. Yeah. So, you know, there's exactly. nothing about we're in it all together mm. at all. Exactly. Yeah, that's Mike. that would be Michael Spence, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, who said he's not taking a single dollar off his one and a half million mm -hmm. a year while casuals are getting sacked. So, yeah, I mean, there's tons of lessons. Even the thing, <laughs> sorry, we're just sidetracking a little bit then to you, but it's a good example. Um, that they're saying as well that one of the advantages of this national jobs protection framework would be that there are expert panels set up in every university to decide sort of who gets sacked and which conditions get cut, which is exactly the same thing as you're saying that about in the accord years that these union leaders wanted to be on the expert panel. They wanted to be in a meeting, you know, with the minister of industry or whatever they were called, you know, Mm. seat at the table, as Jerem would say, their shiny shoes, mm. you know, under the table with the bosses and then who cares about the workers at that point, you know. Absolutely. Well, it reminds me of the, 
the waterfronting um, industry reform authority, and they had, the unions were on that, and basically it meant a massive cut to uh, to the um, workforce on the docks. It went from something like thirty thousand to ten thousand, or something like that. Or it was even might have even been less than that. But this was. This was the government, the bosses and the unions all sitting together on this authority and pushing through this kind of reform. Yeah. So, I mean, what you've written about in your book is basically a bit of an antidote to the idea that people just went along with this because I think that's the case now and I'm sure, you know, if Sally McManus was asked about what, what she means by a new accord, she would say, well, people liked it, people went along with it, you know, it was good the workers and in the end it's got to be better than getting into fights all of the time and surely mm. we can come to agreement so your book's called stuff the accord and it's clear you've, you haven't just said that that was a slogan from the time although i'm sure we all think it but where does that come from and um can you tell us a bit about uh some of the campaigns that were waged against the accord okay well stuff the accord was something that myself and a few others um, came up with, we got a badge from our union saying the Accord says pay up. So we thought, well, the Accord actually doesn't say that. And we thought, well, the, the real thing is stuff the Accord, just pay up, you know. So we altered some of our badges to, to indicate that we didn't actually agree with, with what the unions were saying. And that was the case all the so, way through. Sorry, Liz, where were you working then at the time? Oh, I was working at what's now called Centrelink. And yep. we were we had a massive number of disputes with the government over staffing, over new technology, over wages, uh, over and over and over again, right through to the end of the of the accord years. So even though it was the government that was our employer, um, there was no there was much more, at least amongst people in my department, much more of a sense of sort of. They are still the the even though people voted for them, um, they still saw them as the boss and somebody that they needed to fight against. And in the end, we needed to fight against the union officials as well because the union officials in the major union in the public sector were on board with the accord. The other union, um, which were clerical assistants, they actually opposed the accord, and that was a bit of an inspiration to us as well. And they had meetings, but in the end, they didn't have the strength to to fight against the accord on their own, um, which was the fate of a number of unions. But in the in the federal public sector, we had a range of um, really inspiring disputes in, in the Centrelink, um, in the main offices there. And also, uh, because we haven't got a lot of time, um, and there is some information about that, there's a wonderful sort of story about enterprise bargaining which is the which takes you to really to the end of the accord and the final sort of blow against against workers and that is to divide what were previously like sector-wide um, campaigns over wages and conditions to divide it up into all sorts of individual departments individual workplaces individual factories all of that setting everybody against each other and be and becoming weaker in the process and so enterprise bargaining meant that you you just as a department instead of across the whole sector had to go and bargain for your for a wage increase and it was incredibly unpopular they tried and tried and tried to push it through 
in the um, year between 93 and 96. And even by, ni- by 94, after a year of trying to do this, um, or two years actually because it started in 92, they, they got about three departments who'd actually agreed to some sort of, sort of deal. And I just want some lovely little story here about in Centrelink, um, one of the workplace delegates, they, they, the union came, to, the, came to, the, you know, to this department and said, okay, this is what, what your EBA is going to be. And so it's going to be um, things like, Saturday, public holiday, morning openings um, on ordinary time with the morning off during the week, more rigid sort of flex time thing um, and more management-initiated part-time and temporary jobs. And there was also, you know, joint union management approach to absenteeism, expansion of competency training, assessment and pay, blah de blah de blah And, you know, and in, and there was quite clear that a whole lot of management had, had clear cost-cutting things. So in exchange for this, workers were going to get 1% pay rise and 2% about a year later. And at that stage, there'd been at least two years without any wage rise at all. Mm-hmm. So it was rejected out of hand. And the union sort of went round then to talk to people and they nominated people called pay activists um, you know, delegates who were meant to be involved. And so most of the delegates were nominally pay activists, so one bloke remembered and he said, well, I don't think I did anything different. Um, and he said, I certainly didn't stand up with a red nose on my face, which was what, suggested by one union <laughs> official. I think it was a symbol of their dithering because they really didn't know what to do. And then another commented that the union call for volunteers was really an attempt casting their net wide enough so that they might get a few suckers in to do their dirty work. Um, anyway, so that went on and on and on. And at one stage the union went to, to some of the meetings and the delegates were all screaming about this deal that was on offer and they thought it was all management and then they realised that it was actually the union was pushing this pushing this deal. So, yeah, over and over again, um, let's just keep pushing and pushing and pushing it through until finally, you know, a whole group of demoralised workers ended up having to agree to it because there was no no other alternative. And one of the things about enterprise bargaining at the time that it came in was that Kel- Kelty knew that the unions had been seriously weakened by this stage and... He was challenged by Keating when they tried to bring in enterprise bargaining to hold the line on wage rises. And Kelty replied, and again I'll quote, to be honest, Paul, some of our unions are incapable of bargaining anything, let alone a 4% wage increase. So I wouldn't worry much about it. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's... Mm-hmm. That sums up the effect of the accord, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That you've basically built yourself your own gallows. But so, there was there was resistance, as I said. You know, the yeah. workers fought and fought and fought, and in some cases in in Centrelink, they did have some wins. So it wasn't all completely disastrous. But um, yeah, but that was only when, and like in some of the other cases you write about, rank and file workers actually organised themselves. You know, it's not it's not because the union leadership tried to fight; it's because the workers themselves did it. So, what about some of the other? Um, 
victories sort of against the tide of the accord. So the food preservers, maybe the nurses, were there a couple of the examples well, there? Yeah, very briefly, the nurses had a 50-week strike and won um, against all kinds of attacks and everything. And um, I'll just quote briefly from what Irene Bolger, who was the secretary at the time, she said, uh, the, the ACTU government and the Industrial Relations uh, Commission pointed out the nurses said the nurses were naive and they didn't understand the system. And she just said, of course we knew the system, but we ignored it because it was their rules and their system and we decided that it was time to chuck their rules out the door. Our members were fed up and they won. So that was that was super good. Mm. <laughs> but the food preservers, again, a, a female-dominated um, area of the manufacturing industry and they had... Uh, at a Heinz factory, a Plumrose factory, Rosella Lipton, they put on bans to try and get wage rises and so in some cases they went out for 11 weeks. They got massive support from the truck drivers, from a whole range of other unions who, you know, people who wouldn't cross the picket lines, people who would go and stand by them on the picket lines. And they, while they, in, in one particular case, they were forced to concede some of their demands, when they went back, the the um, management at the at the factory paid a special allowance soon afterwards, so they actually won their pay rise. Um, the industrial relations minister Ralph Willis called the union selfish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They um, in, in Hawke instructed so the um, Centrelink not to pay workers and their dependents unemployment benefits. They tried to get them excluded from the September national wage rise and they tried to rush through legislation to cancel the union's award and that would have been worse than deregistration because they would have been left with no protection at all. Anyway, they won. And Mm. one of their organisers at the time said, we weren't going to become industrial policemen. If members said they couldn't live on what they were getting, what right does a union official have to say you can't improve your wages and conditions because the accord says you can't. It takes away the freedom from people who are actually the union itself. Members feel the anti-accord position and after listening to the rank and file, the Food Preservers Union had decided to bite the bullet and keep fighting. So they went on the next year. They won at Rosella. Uh, again, the, the, the government and, the, and um, the employers tried to cancel them. But the TWU banned deliveries to parent companies, that was great. And at one stage they went into the Arbitration Commission because, again, they were trying to force back the workers and they were walking down the street and Dennis says that they, they, he said he's standing outside the Arbitration Commission waiting for some of the buses to turn up and he sees about 2,000 blokes coming up the hill and John Cummins in front. Now, John Cummins was the leader of the BLF at the time or one of the leaders, and and Dennis says, thinking the BLs were holding their own campaign rally, he cheered them on, and they got within 100 metres of me and Cummo said, that's him, that's Evans, follow him. (laughs) And so the BLs followed them into the Arbitration Commission and taught the commission a few lessons. (laughs) That's an excellent story. So um, there was that level of resistance, yeah. What was happening with the builders' labourers at this in this period then? Well, the builders' labourers went through. Uh, they were one of the key unions that the government was determined to smash. 
and they they took on the VLF with the assistance of the ACTU, a whole range of the other building unions, not the plumbers union here in Victoria and not the ETU here, but a, a range of the other main building unions and or and people like the leaders of the Manufacturing Workers Union, all those people were all out to say you either toe the line 100% or you're out. And the, and the VLF kept resisting. They kept going out, they kept striking, they kept winning and I think that was worse than anything else that they actually won. And so the government decided they'd, they'd run a whole series of campaigns against the leadership of the union claiming that they were corrupt, um, all of that Absolutely. sort of thing. The kind of shaming that they do of any left-wing official if they, if you know, to try and demoralise a union, create a rift with everybody else. Um, and you still hear people saying that, that Gallagher was corrupt, for example, with one of the leaders of the union. So, uh, you know, they, they had this whole process. And when I talked to, I actually interviewed Kelty for, the, for my book um, and he said he did not regret what they did to the to the VLF, and it was crucial. It was crucial to them winning the superannuation campaign because the VLF was the only union on in the industry that really had the muscle and were prepared to fight. And the the ACT used them to get superannuation, and then dumped them and basically went after them and smashed them. Um, and yeah, so I think it was really. I've, I've written a whole book about it, so it's very hard to, to condense yeah. that whole book. Uh, yeah. I was going to say that's your, hey. one of your other. Yeah. Sorry, I was going to say that's one of your other books that people should um, look up just on that. But, but basically, it was because it was a union led by some left wingers, some people who had who were part and parcel of a of a fight back against the accord, and who you know, who saw it for what it was and saw it for an attack on, on workers. And it, it was, a, although the union wasn't the same, um, the pilots were in a similar position and the government smashed them as well. But the BLF was really one of the most militant unions in the country and um, to get the accord through, really, this is what the government had to do. They had to smash these unions. They had to break solidarity. They had to bring in more... Um, anti-union legislation. They had to corral all of the unions. They had to isolate people, all of that sort of stuff to actually make it happen. They couldn't win the argument with workers because workers actually saw what was happening in the end. Hmm. And I think that struggle uh, against the BLF being the um, one of the strongest, most militant, most left-wing most radical unions is similar to the way that Thatcher wanted to take on the miners in Britain. But, you know, it's more, it makes more sense to people that Thatcher, a conservative leader, would want to smash the miners. But actually what we had in Australia was the leadership of the trade union movement wanting to smash the builders' labourers, you know, the equivalent kind of strongest link in the chain. And they felt like if they could break that, they could break the backs of everyone. But... As you said, there was, of course, resistance, there was solidarity, there were um, left-wing unions who had delegates who met in a workers' campaign committee, I think, in Melbourne. Um, there was meetings of that to try to organise solidarity. So people were, you know, continuing to struggle um, through this whole era, mm. which is what is so fantastic about having that documented in your, in your book now. And we might finish with... Um, 
just a few words about the legacy of the accord and you know the current discussion around a new accord and some of the you know and and in between i guess now we have enterprise bargaining off the back of the accord um but there was a certain amount of bitterness and i think tom bramble writes about this in mm. his book about the history of the union movement that it wasn't that people sort of just got on with things and didn't know what was going on like you said workers always knew what was going on and that they were ready to fight that they wanted to fight and that you know coming into the 90s that bitterness was sort of seething away in people and so coming into then uh, some of the struggles of the 90s in particularly in Victoria against the Kennett government uh, there was a mood to struggle still and I think I mean that's one of the greatest um, condemnations of the whole period of the accord was that generation of militants that were really just you know repeatedly demoralized by the people that they thought you know should have led them into struggle but led them into just defeat without a fight yeah exactly I thought Tom Bramble's quote is really good and that's another book that people really should read because it's the history of the Australian trade union movement from 1945 through to the 90s and and really important um, history there too. Uh, I think in terms of the legacy of the Accord, there are really two legacies. There's the defeats, the deunionisation, the demoralisation. The thing that the Australian Financial Review wrote and it's where it said the bottom line is that the Accord has kept the line on wage inflation during what has been Australia's biggest economic boom since at least the early 70s. Under the Accord, the ACTU has deliberately facilitated the biggest redistribution of national income from rages to profits. Mm. Um, that's that's for the bosses, but for the union movement itself, as I said, defeats the deunionisation, the demoralisation that Tom Tom refers to, uh, and they want to do it again. Um, but I think, as I outline in my book, it's also working class resistance, solidarity, and organisation. John Cummins said of the fight for the BLF, he said. Builders and labourers lost their jobs, they lost their families, they lost houses, they gave it their all. They were the source of inspiration not only to their own workmates but to those of us who were officials. And it's it's had a great impact in terms of still being around, still being in the game. If we hadn't fought, hadn't run the distance, it would have all been lost. And I think that's the sort of thing for me that the whole period of the Accord, it was the education of a lifetime and a confirmation for me of the vital role of the working class in building for a better future. Mm. And that's what I think the legacy really is. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is a fantastic way to end. And thank you so much, Liz. And I hope everyone um, goes and buys the book now. that They've had a little taster of some of the stories involved. And obviously you've done a lot of um, research. You've talked to a lot of people, including some of the class enemies so god god knows how you stomach sitting and talking to bill <laughs> kelly but thank you for do- taking one for the team and um yeah thank you so much for being on red flag radio it was great as i said before it's a it's a real privilege to be on such a fantastic podcast cheers liz thanks liam Pleasure. you're listening to red flag radio we have a world to win <laughs>